Okay, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, God, the hope that it gives us, the good news, Lord. Father, right now we just ask that you'd bless this time as we study your word. God, may we not leave here the same as we came, but may we be transformed into your image more and more. God, we love you, and we ask for you to apply the words, your words into our hearts and our minds so that we can do what you desire for us to do. We give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight's study is going to be a little bit different than past. It's going to be a less, little less sermon-esque and a little more Bible study-esque. Meaning that I want to give you a lot of background information going into the Gospel of Mark. We'll still have some application of this, this passage. But I think it's important as we study a Gospel book to understand what was happening just prior to Christ's coming. You know, we tend to, being Gentiles and being removed 2,000 years... We tend to kind of uh, read some of our own presuppositions into the text. And I think when we start to find out what was actually happening at the time of Christ's arrival, we start to go, whoa, this is huge. This is huge. And then we start to realize how to apply it within our own culture. The intertestamental period from Malachi to Matthew or to the gospel, to the arrival of Christ, was a little over 400 years, 430 or 50, we're not totally exactly sure on that exact date. But you had 400 years with no prophet for Israel. No one speaking on behalf of the, of the Lord. No one instructing Israel or guiding them in the way in which they should go. Now imagine for a moment if your Bible was taken away and you had no Bible. And someone said, hey, just honor the Lord and you'll be good. But you go, well, what do I do to honor the Lord? And you start looking inward to yourself to try to figure out your own ideas. Well, this is probably what it means to honor the Lord. Or this is good, so that probably honors the Lord. But the problem is, you can be way off. And most of the time we are, especially when we look inside to ourselves. So this was a time when Israel was, they had some of the later prophets, but there was no one to really speak prophecy in. And it was also a time of, of a lot of wars. If you remember, the Persians were in ruling power at the end of Malachi prophesying. They still had authority over Israel, and they still, uh, Israel still was paying tribute. But then a conqueror came named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came through conquering and doing what we call Hel Hellenizing the culture. He was bringing the Greek culture into everywhere he conquered. 
And so with that, he brought common Greek or Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. And that became the new trade language. So at the time of Jesus' arrival on the scene, the Jews were speaking Aramaic. So there's arguments about whether they're speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. But let me just tell you this. Aramaic and Hebrew are really close. Uh, they are different languages, but they're very close. In fact, when you look at the letters, the, the alphabet or the, al- uh, the alphabet, they look almost identical in symbols. So it's a very close language. But it, they are different words. But Greek came on the scene because of the Hellenization of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was building up his kingdom, and he died very young, as we all know. And he handed off his kingdom to his generals. And the ones who took over were the Seleucids for the area of Israel and what's called the Levant, which is that area of coastal area by, uh, of Israel. And then, of course, Ptolemy took over Egypt and Alexandria. Ptolemy, though, however, saw himself as the next emperor. And he always had it in mind to take that territory back. Israel actually became a place of turmoil and war. And through this, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Seleucid ruler, found Israel to be a troublesome group to to rule. In fact, he found them to be stubborn people who wouldn't submit to the Greek culture. So he decided he knew how to fix the situation. He walked into the temple with a pig, and he sacrificed it upon the altar, and therefore making it completely unclean. This is called the abomination of desolation, not the one that Jesus is speaking of later on in prophecy. This was an abomination that happened, and, and it was a terrible thing. It left the temple desolate because they didn't know what to do. In fact, the Maccabees, the time of the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt was during this time. And once they finally took back the temple and took back Jerusalem, they said, we don't know what to do. There's no prophet to tell us. Can we clean up the altar? Can we, can we make it clean again? Or do we need to build a new altar and completely destroy it? But we don't know because there's no prophet to tell us. Of course, we have the holiday, holiday Hanukkah that comes out of that Maccabean revolt um, during this intertestamental time. Another group arose during this time in a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually a group, they started out really good. They decided that they were against the Hellenization of their culture. They were against the pagan rituals that the Greeks were bringing in with them. Specifically, one ritual called the gymnasium. See, the Greeks were all about perfecting their bodies. And I'm sure they'd be jealous looking at me. (laughs) But they were all about the perfection of their body. And, And one of the things they would do is they would go to their gym and they'd work out. But they wouldn't just work out. They'd work out in the nude. And for a Jew, this was not okay. This was bad. And I know most of us, one time I went into a gym and Pastor Rod had something where he's like, hey, let's go lift weights. I was like, okay, I hope I don't show you up. No, <laughs> But uh, we went to this gym and, and uh, they had a, an area in the locker room where they had TVs and stuff and, and chairs, like these leather chairs. And I saw these like naked guys sitting in these leather chairs. I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> We're not doing this. Sorry, I just adjusted my earpiece and it might be a little bit louder. And so, uh, anyway, the, the Greeks would work out in the nude. They were all about perfecting their body and basically worshiping themselves. And the, the Pharisees said, no way. 
this is not okay. We're not going to succumb to this culture. We're going to retain our heritage. We're going to honor the Lord God, and we're going to worship him. And so they began the Pharisaical movement or that, the movement of the Pharisees. So they, in a sense, they were heroes to the Jews because they were a group of people that were willing to stand out against the culture and stand up for God. Now, in the, in the Gospels, we, we see what they've become. They've become a legalistic culture, and often they're seen as the, the uh, enemy to Jesus. They're seen as the antagonist to Jesus, but that's not how they started out. So this intertestamental period continues on, and finally Rome comes in and, and puts Jerusalem under their control. It was a constant changing of who had authority. With Rome came the establishment of the Herodian family, or the Herods. And Herod was no saint at all. In fact, if you remember about Herod the Great, he did a lot of projects. He rebuilt the temple. He, he, he built all sorts of buildings. And I mean, he was a, he, he was a big project uh, manager, builder, and everything like that. But if you remember when Jesus was born, he put to death every child under two in Bethlehem. So Herod was not a good guy. Herod was an evil man. And so Jerusalem and Israel still had no peace during this time, and they were under the rule of the Romans. Enter the Gospels. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark was written later on after, well, we're not really sure exactly when was Mark, Mark was written. They think, some think in the 40s, some think in the 50s, some think in the 60s. We're really not sure exactly when. But we do know this about Mark. John Mark was not a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. His mom was a devoted follower of Jesus because we know that the night that Peter is arrested in the book of Acts, they're praying at John Mark's house, his mother's house, for Peter's release. And if you remember that story, Peter gets released and he comes to the he comes knocking on the door of the house and Rhoda, the servant girl, opens up the door and sees Peter and is like slams the door and runs back and said, you're never going to believe who's at the front door. It's Peter. <laughs> you know, Peter's like sitting outside. Hey, well, okay. So, but that was happening at John Mark's mother's house. Sorry, my earpiece is not cooperating tonight. That was happening at John Mark's house. We know that John Mark went on missionary journeys with Paul and they actually had a falling out because for whatever reason, John Mark returned home in the middle of a journey, and Barnabas and Paul had a little bit of an argument about this, and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, John Mark went back home. Later on, though, John Mark is with Peter, and he's with Paul in Rome. And we believe that it is through the contact with Peter and John Mark's being with Peter all the time that, in a sense, Mark's gospel is a reflection of Peter's eyewitness account. And that's what we often think that where John Mark's uh, primary source was, was the Apostle Peter. There's no question about Mark's gospel that it was written for the Gentile, for the non-Jew. And it was written to those in Rome for sure. Because there are phrases that John says that are almost translated better into the Latin than they are into the Greek. There's also things where John will give parenthetical statements explaining what was going on in the Jewish mind or about the Jewish ceremonial cleansings and those sorts of things so that the Gentile reader would get a better understanding of what was going on. And so Mark's gospel is, I think, perfect for us 
especially for those of us who haven't ever read a gospel account or don't know that much about the Lord Jesus, this is perfect. And by the way, I want to encourage you, as we're going through the gospel of Mark, bring friends. Hey, challenge people. Hey, I've heard you talk about God. I've heard you talk about Jesus. Do you want to actually know Jesus? Well, we're studying Jesus right now in our church. We're going through the gospel of Mark, and it's a fast-paced gospel. It's, it's uh, very quick-paced, and it's a great time to find out about Jesus. So I want to encourage you to invite friends as we do this. Verse 1, though, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This word, arche, the beginning, it, it resonates with us, and there's a couple, I'm not sure why Mark did this. By the way, there's no title to Mark's gospel. He just wrote a gospel. And uh, we, in fact, the only reason why we know it's Mark's gospel is because all the early Christian writers attribute it to him. They all talk about Mark's, Mark's gospel, and they all, they all talk about this genre of his writing. But the question is, why did he start out with the beginning? Maybe it was because he was trying to help us reference back to the creation in the beginning. In fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Genesis starts out with arche. Just like Mark's gospel, arche, the beginning. The beginning of the gospel. Could be that. It could be that, that John, uh, John, or Mark was drawing attention to us to the, the, there's a new progenitor for us, for human, mankind. The old one, Adam, had sinned and fallen in the Garden of Eden. Now, now there's a new one who is the second Adam, the one who can be holy, the one who can die in our place on that cross. There's a possibility that Mark is referencing back to that. I think there, there's kind of a neat thing about the beginning of the gospel and the fact that maybe Mark's leaving room for you and me in this story. In fact, Mark's gospel ends very abruptly. It, it's almost like, wait, that's it? That's the end? And I, I tend to think that Mike's, Mark is referencing to all those Christians who are sharing the gospel they're living out the gospel. They're sharing it with their, the people that they come in contact with on a day-to-day -day basis. They're sharing what the, the, they're being discipled in. And Mark puts down in order, well, here's the beginning. Here's the origin story of the gospel. Here, here's where it starts. And now you're a part. It's kind of the same thing with Acts. Acts ends really abruptly. It's the history of the church. Why doesn't it have an ending? The church hasn't ended. You and I are just as much a part of that story God has brought us into that story and wants us to be a part of his gospel message. It's an awesome idea when you think about it. But this is the beginning of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It's very simple. Yengelion. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Good news. Good news for who? Good news for you and me, for sure. I called up my brother Bryce on the phone the other day and I said, hey Bryce, how are you doing? And he's like, well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for me in my place. And so I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. He took my sin upon himself. And I was like, what a great way to answer the question, how are you? He might have said it a little different, but I, I really enjoyed that. And, uh, and, and I love that. It's the good news. It's your good news. It's my good news. Because it's that news that Jesus has done what you and I can't do. He has taken our sin, our penalty, our shame upon himself, nailing it to that cross so that you and I can have life and have it to the full. That we can cross over from death into life. It's a wonderful, 
wonderful news that we have. So Mark quotes from Isaiah. He doesn't jump into the genealogies like Matthew or Luke, the other um, synoptic gospels. He just starts right out with, here's the beginning. We're going to start with the baptism of Jesus. And he jumps right into it and he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If you'll see the insert, I put a little note below this, saying that these verses are actually three verses. It's quoting from Exodus, it's quoting from Malachi, and it's quoting from Isaiah. But yet Mark writes, according to Isaiah the prophet. Let me explain why. Within the first century, in the writing, in the context of this, often when you would quote something, you'd quote the most prominent one first. You'd just quote the prominent one. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons why Mark quotes Isaiah. Also, half of the book of Isaiah is all about Messiah and salvation. So Mark references back to Isaiah 40, and he's saying, hey, guess what? That guy in Isaiah, the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the one who's going to save Israel, this is he. It's Jesus Christ. So that all the Jews who read this understand Okay, this is talking about Messiah. This is talking about our Savior. So, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Whenever a traveling dignitary would come to somewhere, one of the first things you do is fix up all the roads. Don't want him to hit any potholes. Wouldn't want his horse to stumble. Whatever he's doing. You're going to prepare the way. You're going to make straight paths for him. Level everything out. Make as cushy as an entrance as possible. That's the idea of prepare the way for the Lord. Now, John shows up, and he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we say, well, wait a minute. Isn't John the Baptist in the New Testament? Yes, he is. But he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he shows up. Just as it's prophesied that this person is going to come announcing the arrival of Messiah and preparing the way of the Lord. Well, how is John preparing the way of the Lord? Listen, as John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Interesting that John's method, John, John is a unique guy, there's no question about it. It tells us that he ate locusts and honey, he, he dressed funny. And by the way, locusts are a clean food, so you can, you know, you can cook up some locusts, saute them in a nice, I don't know, whatever, and then and just, uh, you know, pick out the crunchy part. Wait, they're all crunchy. But, but it's one of the clean foods of the Levitical. There's no question he's living an aesthetic life, and, he, and he's devoted himself to the Lord. But he's preaching this message, baptizing people in, in, for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Baptizing, baptism is this idea of, of dipping in or immersing into the water. And it's not a completely New, new Testament idea. It's actually a, a, an Old Testament idea. But, but we see it differently in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they talk about mikvah. And, and it's the idea of a ceremonial washing or cleansing. And they would use baptism also as an entrance into the Jewish community. So if you were a Gentile coming into the Jewish community and you're a male, you're going to have to be circumcised and then you get baptized into the community. You're dipped in the water, you're cleaned, cleansed, and then you're entered into the community. 
Well, they did ceremonial washings all the time, but the John's baptism is very different because he's saying, repent of your sins and be baptized. He's preparing the people for the Lord, preparing the way for the Lord, getting your hearts ready because the fact is, is the gospel is not the gospel without repentance. It's a part of the gospel. Every night, it seems like you hear the word repent out of me almost every Sunday night. And it's it, because it's a part of the gospel. If, you're gonna, if you are going to accept the Lord, it's time for you to turn around, turn from your ways, and do it God's way. It's what God called Israel to do in the desert. He turned them around from their life in Egypt, brought them out into the wilderness. He turned them. He turned their hearts towards him. And who did they follow? They followed the Lord. There's the pillar of fire by, by night and the cloud by, by day. They followed the Lord. They were committed to the Lord. And what did they go through on the way through the Red Sea? Well, the New Testament tells us a baptism. They were baptized through the Red Sea. So it's the idea of preparing the way. Now, John's baptism is unique in the fact that he was starting to be called the baptizer. John the baptizer. That's really what they were calling him. Can you imagine that getting a cool nickname? The baptizer. <laughs> He's coming for you. <laughs> Prepare yourself. The baptizer. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds cool. It's the fifth member of the A-team. <laughs> Baptizing. <laughs> yeah, just think on that. <laughs> so John is being known as the baptizer, and there's a reason why. Because his baptism is unconventional compared to what Israel has, been seen, has seen in the past. His is a one-time deal for repentance. Now, this is not the, the baptism of Jesus and we're going to see that a little, a little bit. Uh, what, what Christians, the baptism we go through is not the same baptism that John was offering. But he was preparing hearts for the coming of our Lord. Calling them to repentance. Notice it says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We repent. We recognize God. My heart is not right. If you're going to see Jesus, it's going to start with repentance. I had a, a, a person visit recently who, who wants to be spiritual. They want to know Jesus. They, they even told me they want to know Jesus. But there is this ongoing sin in their life. And they don't want to give that up. And they want to justify it. He told me that, that he didn't understand why he has to give up his husband to follow Jesus. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you don't want to give up a relationship out of wedlock. Maybe you don't want to give up a drug. Maybe you don't want to give up your temper tantrums or your fits of rage. Maybe you don't want to give up your pride. Whatever the sin is, the gospel demands that if we are going to see Jesus, it has to start with repentance and confession. If we want healing, we go to the Lord for, heal, for him to heal us. And we confess our sins to him. And it can't be part of our sin. It's got to be all of it. It's all or nothing. Just like with that baptism, it's all under the water or nothing. You can't show up 
to John the Baptist, baptism, and say, can we just do the feet? Because I kind of just prefer, like, we leave this part out. You know? I, I, I mean, I'll even, like, kind of wade in. But, but my hair is looking good today. I can just imagine how the, the fifth member of the A-team, John the Baptizer, would respond to you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want to go any further because right now I'm on the edge of blasphemy. So we're just going to stop. <laughs> so we're going to turn from that. <laughs> I'm repenting and we're moving on. <laughs> so they were confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. Wore this leather belt around his waist. This guy was wild. He was crazy. But you know what? He was a lot like Elijah. And he was crazy enough that the people would recognize Whoa, are you Elijah? In fact, they even ask Jesus this question. What about John the Baptist? And Jesus even says, yeah, he's Elijah. He's the one. He's the one that Malachi prophesied about, that God would send ahead of me so that you wouldn't miss me. God goes out of his way to make sure that you and I don't miss him, that we're not going to miss out on what he has for us, But you know what the problem is? A lot of times we're so focused on our sin that we're not willing to look. We're so focused on what we want that we miss out. It's like texting and driving. We can all tell when someone's texting and driving. It's like, whoa, it's worse than drunk driving, I think. I don't know. Uh, Because at least a drunk driver's trying. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I shouldn't make jokes about it. But yeah, I know. <laughs> Julia, why did I do that? <laughs> no, but I mean, you can tell because like, they're like, okay, hold on, I'm just going to answer this real quick. <laughs> they're just swerving all over the road. But it's, it's like texting and driving. You're so focused on yourself or answering your, this text or whatever that you're missing everything going on in the road. And then you say, what? The person just appeared out of nowhere. No, they were actually on a walker, slowly getting their way across the crosswalk when you hit them. Sin makes us miss out on the glory and the goodness of God. And John was there preaching repentance, preparing people. And he said this. He said, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. What was John saying? Well, the Jews felt that certain servants were not worthy to untie your sandals because they were, they were lowly ones. And John, John is saying, I'm, I'm the lowest of the low. This guy is so much better than me. This guy coming, the Messiah, he, he, when he comes, when he gets here, you're going to see that I'm not even worthy of him. So if you're listening to my message today, well, just get ready for his message because it's going to be awesome. That's really what what John's saying. Jesus is so above me. And it's interesting because when Jesus speaks of John the Baptist, he calls John the Baptist the greatest in the kingdom up till that time. It's amazing how Jesus refers to him. And, of course, we can all take that. If we want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, we better get busy being the lowest and the servant of all because that's what our master did for us. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. This is part of the covenant fulfillment of the Old Testament, what John's saying. All the Jews knew that when Messiah comes, he's going to remove the law and put it into their hearts. Jeremiah chapter 30. When it talks about the new covenant, Ezekiel chapter 36. Their time is coming when I will remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. When obeying my commandments won't be such a struggle, but it will come from right within them. I will change their mindsets and their hearts. And that's what John is proclaiming here, that this one, this person coming after me, the one that's greater than me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And of course we see that on the day of Pentecost. Well, first we see Jesus breathe on the disciples of the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the empowering. Remember, they're waiting in that prayer room. They're waiting for the Lord. They're saying, all right, Lord, we're, you told us to wait. Wait for the empowering. Here we are, Acts 1.8. They're waiting and they're praying. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them to do the work of the Lord, to do His work. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what's coming to those who are ready. That was John's message. It's pretty simple. But it's not easy. And it may not be easy for you to repent. It may not be easy for you to confess your sin. But I want to tell you guys, once you do it, once you decide to let go and give it over to the Lord, to turn from your ways and turn towards God, you're going to see God will transform your life. And there's nothing better than a clean conscience. You just don't know it until you give it to the Lord. Well, with that said, I want to pray, and I want to pray for you. And we're going to continue talking about Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus' baptism, and why did Jesus get baptized? Pretty good question to ask. He didn't need repentance, did he? So we'll be talking about that next week as we go on. But now let me ask you, do you know the Lord? Have you surrendered to him? If you haven't, I want to invite you to, it's so simple. It's just recognizing your need for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. It's recognizing that you, going your way, it's not working. And you need a Savior, Jesus Christ. And turning from your sins. So, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time in your word. And we thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets. They're serving people. Lord, proclaiming your goodness and your coming. And God, we, we want to be like him, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Helping people to know that if they turn from their sin, they'll find life in you. And if you're here tonight and you, you don't know the Lord Jesus, but you want to be forgiven of your sin, it's real simple. Just say this prayer. Lord Jesus, I repent from my sin. I'm turning to you. God, I thank you for dying on that cross for me. I thank you for sacrificing yourself in my place, and I want that. I accept your gift of salvation. I'm ready to follow you. Please be the Lord of my life. I surrender it all. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray now that you bless the rest of our time in worship and our communion as we come before you. You are so good to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I don't want to take up any more time because we have a special guest speaker who flew in from Florida tonight, and she was in LAX a little bit ago and drove straight here, and so we're really excited that she was willing to do this. She's from Operation Christmas Child, and I'm sure you can see all the green and red boxes. Uh, this is the first Sunday we're launching Operation Christmas Child.
and we're excited to have her share some of her story in working with Operation Christmas Child. So let me welcome up Amanda Hasegawa. Did I get that right? Yes. <laughs> Come on up, Amanda. Hi, guys. So like he said, my name is Amanda, and I'm not from Florida. I'm actually from here, from California. I was just there on a trip and came back. But um, I'm just really excited to tell you guys my story and just how I've seen God move through Operation Christmas Child. Actually, the song God is Able Today just reminded me of one of my favorite verses. It's Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, and it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And actually, during my time with Operation Christmas Child, that's kind of been a key verse for me. So if you've never heard of Operation Christmas Child, basically, it's through Samaritan's Purse, and they collect these shoeboxes that you see, and you pack them with stuffed animals, candy and toys, hygiene items, toothbrushes, things like that. And then we collect them, and we send them to all these impoverished children around the world. Sounds like a pretty simple idea, right? Well, that's at the service level, but I just, today, I, I just really want to take you deeper into that. Because, you know, it's not just a nice thing that you do at Christmas. You know, a lot of people do charity things, like they are more generous to, during Christmas, like they give more money, they are more inclined to do charities, but Operation Christmas Child is different. So, I'm a college student, I'm a freshman at Biola University, and, yep, go Biola. And <laughs> um, one thing that I think college students, myself included, really struggle with, maybe you're different, but at least for me, perspective is something that's really a challenge. You know, you go to college, and during college, it's kind of a time where the culture says it's all about you, what you want to do, what you want to major in, where you want to go in life, and it's just all about you finding what college works for you, which dorm style, which it's just all about you. And then on top of that, there's the tests and all the reading and quizzes and navigating relationships, things like that. And sometimes during college, I think we can become so just focused on us. That's something Operation Christmas Child has taught me. It's really given me perspective. So a little bit about my story. Um, I started packing shoeboxes when I was five years old. And during that time, we would just come together as a family during Christmas, and be, we'd be like, oh, hey, I want to pack a box for a girl that's my age. So we'd go to the store and pick up all these toys, and it was a ton of fun. And then I continued doing that. And then at age 13, I went to a processing center. So I don't know if you've ever been there, but basically picture thousands of shoeboxes like these just like stacked up super high and you go and package them and you see all these shoeboxes are going all around the world and something that they do that is really cool they tell you you know they'll stop the whole center and they'll just start praying for the boxes because they say you know God has a shoebox all these shoeboxes each and every one God has already picked out the child that will receive that shoebox. And I would say that growing up. I'd be like, oh, yeah, God has a child picked out for every box. But I didn't 
actually really begin to understand what that meant until two summers ago. Two summers ago, God blessed me with the opportunity to go to the Philippines to pass out shoeboxes. I went with this team called Samaritan's Purse Youth Trip, and there were about 19 of us, ages 16 to 22, so kind of maybe like your age, maybe a little younger. And we were there for a week, and we just loved on kids and passed out shoeboxes. And if I could sum up that trip in seven words, it would be this. There are no coincidences in God's kingdom. You see, Operation Christmas Child, it's an amazing ministry, but a lot of times people just see the service. They just see that, oh yeah, like kids get shoeboxes, they get toys, but no, it's not that. Yes, they do, and there's so much joy, but it's about sharing the gospel. It's about giving these kids who they really need, and that's Jesus. Actually, Brother Aldi, a team member from the Philippines, he said, you know, for us, it's not shoebox. It's shoebox to the Bible, shoebox to the gospel. And I think once we get that perspective that it's so much more than just giving kids shoeboxes, that's when we see impact. It's about changing lives, and it's an eternal perspective. Um, I'd like to share with you a few stories, though, that I saw on the trip that God just moved in incredible ways. So my team, we reached about 2,000 kids in the span of about four days. And we would go to schools, and there would be like 6,000 or 4,000, 10,000 kids at the schools. And we'd reach out to the 300 or 400 poorest children. Now, we went to Metro Manila, and there are about 2 million children in Metro Manila who are living under poverty level. So we have no concept of that, but those kids, they really had nothing. I mean, you couldn't tell they had uniforms on, but I just would wonder, you know, what are their home lives like? But anyways, we'd go, and it was so much fun. Um, a lot of, sometimes the kids didn't know they were getting presents. They just knew that we were coming, and we were giving them a presentation of the gospel. That was the main thing. They would do this object lesson or tell a story, and you could tell the kids were just rapt attention. And then it would come time to pass out the shoeboxes. So it's not like we were saying, oh, I think this shoebox is good for that kid or this one's good for that one. We were just honestly just trying to hand them out as fast as we could, get all the kids. So from our end, it's totally random. But that's where God comes in. Because then all the kids would receive their boxes and they would, the pastors and the people who are sharing would say, okay, let's pray. You know, God knows what you want and he cares about you. And for these kids that have nothing, who are just a face in a school of 10,000 kids, they need to hear that, that there's a God who loves them. And they need a tangible way to see that. So they would pray, and then they would open their box. And there is so much joy. Um, I remember at one of the distributions, there were these kids that were 14 years old. They opened their box, and they were jumping up and down. They were like, we have toothpaste. <laughs> yeah, I mean, toothpaste, come on. If you got toothpaste in your stockings or that... Yeah, we wouldn't really be that thrilled, but they, that was like the best thing in the world to them. And then I remember another little girl, she had this Etch-a-Sketch and she had no idea what it was. So I turned the knob and the line appeared and she was like, <gasps> and then when I shook it up and it all disappeared, she, her mind was blown. She was just like, whoa, <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> 
And so there was so much joy there. But then also, I just saw God work. After they would give testimonies, at this one school, I think they had 4,000 or 6,000 kids, the 300 poorest children, and they asked for testimonies. One little boy came up and he shared he had prayed for a monkey toy. Pretty specific, not just like a stuffed animal or not just crayons. It was a monkey toy. And then he opened his box and he held up a stuffed monkey. Now, to give you some perspective, the way Operation Christmas Child works is we collect shoeboxes from 13 countries and then we process them in all these centers. So it's random. Like I told you, there are thousands and thousands of shoeboxes that just go through these centers, get passed out to all these countries all around the world. And then in those countries, they go through customs and they go to all these random distribution sites. And then from those, there are thousands, I'm sure, then those in those sites, we're just passing them out to random kids. So if you can just, just take a step back and just think of that, that through all that random, from that random country to a random processing center to another random receiving country to a distribution center into the hands of that kid, there's no way that we could ever orchestrate that. That was all God. And these kids, after the distribution, there's this 12-week-long discipleship program called The Greatest Journey. And so these kids, they get to hear about Jesus and just really go deeper in their faith. And lives are transformed through this. Um, I know I don't have a lot of time left, but I just want to share one story. I actually wasn't at this distribution site, but just another incredible story of, you know, these are more than just shoeboxes. God has each one picked out for a child. Um, one lady I met, she had gone and passed out shoeboxes at a Filipino cancer ward. And they were handing out the boxes, and she gave it to this one little girl who had no hair. She was super skinny, had just gone through chemo. But when the girl opened her shoebox, it was full of hair bows and hair clips and hairpins. And the worker who had given her the shoebox was horrified. She, she said to the mom, I'm so sorry. We have no control over these shoeboxes. And the mom just stared at her with tears in her eyes. And she said, how did you know? My daughter will go through the gutter to pick up those hair bows. She's always asking for me to buy them. But I can't even afford her medicine, much less something she won't use. And out of all those millions of shoeboxes, God provided that for that little girl. Just a tangible expression, just a small reflection of how much he loves her. And how just a tiny, tiny reflection of the love that Christ has for her, that he gave his own life for her. So I'm just so thankful that you guys are doing this ministry. And if you've never done it before, just don't be shy. Like, it is so much fun, and you might not see this side of heaven, where your shoebox goes, but God has a child picked out for every shoebox. And I'm not just saying that. I truly believe that. And it's just a ripple effect. It will affect their families. It will affect their friends, their community. And just think of the multiplication of the gospel just through that one shoebox. So... Thank you for packing these and being part of the work that God's doing.